Good evening. Welcome to The Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Russian President Vladimir Putin gave an enlightening speech on Victory Day. Also, French President Emmanuel Macron has put on hold Ukraine's entry into the EU, and we debate if the controversial nation of Ukraine is a de facto member of NATO. Joining us now to discuss this subject, we have Professor Nikolai Petro. He's a professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, specializing in Ukraine and Russia. Professor Petro, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Nice to be with you again. So the Russian president had an interesting speech. Um, I read the transcript and I find it very, a very Russian speech that Westerners wouldn't understand in that culturally because there are so many allusions to history and allusions to heroes in the past. And, you know, we tend to be more kind of scientific and more here. We tend not to have those types of tends not to be as literary. I found it uh, that way. But anyway, your thoughts on President Putin's speech and what you got out of it that we may find interesting. Well, I think uh, each country has its own myths and its own heroes, and uh, we will tend to cling to those, but it's nice when um, countries reach out and honor uh, each other's heroes, and I think that was one aspect of this uh, Victory Day speech that I uh, enjoyed seeing the reaching out uh, first and foremost to American veterans, saying that uh, Russia would never forget their contribution to the common victory. Then he mentioned uh, all the other allies. That's something that, uh, unfortunately, we we really don't see enough of. Um, But as for the rest of the speech, uh, there was nothing new in it. It highlighted the familiar themes that uh, Russia has been making with respect to its um, military intervention in Ukraine, Uh, specifically that uh, it was Russia's uh, efforts to um, ensure equal and indivisible security for all that were rebuffed by NATO, uh, instead, NATO, uh, he said, was essentially assisting um, Ukraine in preparing an assault on uh, eastern Ukraine in Donbass. And further than that, he said, into Russia's historical lands, including Crimea. Russia was therefore left with no choice, according to Putin, but to preemptively rebuff this aggression And now uh, the uh, combined armies of Donbass and Russia are fighting on their own lands. And uh, he anticipated uh, that uh, after this conflict is over, that the efforts to divide Russians and Ukrainians will uh, have failed. 
So that, I think, is his overall message. I also feel as though, and, you know, I've read the Empire of Lies speech, um, and I read, uh, the, you know, of course, this speech. I read all of the, uh, President Putin's speeches, as I do with as many of world leaders as I can. Um, but I also get the, 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 the notion that President Putin is making both to the world and to his the citizens of, of the Russian Federation, he's making the argument that this is a moral action that he had no choice but to take on behalf, not just of the Russian Federation, but on the half of, shall we say, fairness in general, in that there's a an immoral act being, there's a hegemonic power. He even goes on to, to say basically that the hegemonic power is abusing both its enemies and its adversary, shall we say, and its allies. He certainly implies that the the Europeans are being used and, and mistreated, used and abused, shall we say. So your thoughts on his the moral case that he has made before and seems to be continuing to make? Well, I think uh, he's always, Russian leaders have always made the moral case with respect to Donbass. Namely, there was an eight-year conflict within Ukraine that Russia was full in engaged on in trying to resolve. Specifically, Russia authored the Minsk peace program, which <clears throat> would have forced uh, Donbass to re-enter Ukraine, but uh, as an autonomous region with certain regional rights. But um, Russia specifically rejected the results of uh, the referendum <clears throat> uh, on independence for Donbass in 2015 uh, in an attempt to get it to re-enter uh, Ukraine. But the West uh, didn't encourage that uh, kind of resolution, and uh, Ukraine eventually uh, rejected it in toto. As a result, the military um, assault uh, went on there for eight years. Now, uh, then there's the second aspect, which... I think the moral uh, issue derives from the Western response to Russia's military intervention, which I think uh, Putin would describe as out of all proportion compared to military incursions that the United States, Great Britain, France and other countries have engaged in over the last 20 years. There's nothing particularly unusual about this one, except that it's much closer to home and addresses really uh, specific security issues raised by, by Russia uh, that it sees as a threat rather than issues that are, so let's say, in the case of Iran, Iraq or Afghanistan or Libya or Syria thousands of miles away. To me, I interpret that as, the pre as, as President Putin saying, the issue here is not what I'm doing. The issue is who is doing it. That their anger is not that there is a military incursion. It's that only the U.S. and its empire has the right to arbitrarily take any military action, or not even arbitrarily, to take any military action. So what we're looking at simply here is this is a, re, this is a, uh, a reflection of an outrage that says, how dare you, kind of like in the old days when someone, like in the feudal days when someone couldn't go kill a deer even if they were hungry because they'd say, you can't, that's the king's deer. 
so that this is about you're not allowed to take these actions. Only the king is allowed to take this action. And you have not been granted the right by the empire. And not only that, you're doing this in opposition to the empire. That creates a gigantic outrage. Your thoughts? Yes. And that that is indeed the gist of Russia's argument, um, which I think uh, has uh, been heard in what uh, is commonly referred to as the global south. In other words, they, in fact, do see this as a double standard um, in the West criticism, I should say, of Russia as a double standard. Um, In the West, we're trying to pretend that it is not, and it's hard to know how many people, in fact, agree with the official uh, media and government uh, positions that this is a unique example of Russian, uh, uh, a unique example of aggression, or indeed whether um, there is an understanding that uh, the West is similarly uh, engaged in this sort of practice. It's not clear because everything in the media has become so distorted and skewed that it's hard to know uh, what views are shared by how many people anymore. I also think, and I want to move on to Ukraine, but I also want to think President Putin's background as a lawyer is glaringly obvious here because, you know, when you go to court, one of the cases that you have to make often, depending on, on the suit, but a lot of times you have to make the case that you've exhausted all potential remedies. And attorneys know that. And he's making the case, continues to make the case. We've exhausted all potential remedies and therefore there was nothing left. We were backed into a corner, et cetera, which would be a, a self defense case. But I did want to ask you about this. One of uh, there's an argument that been made that Ukraine had a Article five that that they were a de facto member of uh, NATO and that the proof is in the pudding in how the reaction is being treated exactly like if they were a NATO member under Article five. And in that Article five doesn't specifically say that NATO countries have to come to the aid using uh, military means means that exactly what's happening in NATO is something that, I mean, excuse me, in Ukraine is what could happen with an Article 5 instance. And anyway, your thoughts on all of this? I think that's a big stretch of the Article 5 clause. There's clearly Ukraine is not a member of NATO, period. It's not a member of the European Union, period. It would like to be. But um the retroactive justification, uh, great powers need no justification for the actions that they take. This is not actually a moral dilemma for them. It is a a great power. It's an exercise of power. And that is frankly what we see. If you, one of the great uh, examples of this is I think um, Russian foreign minister Lavrov's explanation of why Russia wants to be paid in rubles for uh, its um, uh, oil and natural gas now, said, well, because the money that it was paid is now been, uh, has now been seized because it is not in rubles. And that amounts to theft because the goods have been sold, but uh, Russia wasn't paid. So to prevent further theft, essentially, uh, Russia is now demanding that the monies that it gets also be transferred into rubles. And that simply shows that when it comes to promoting 
their geopolitical interests, all countries will give short shrift to the rule of law. To me, you know, when listening to John Mearsheimer, when he talks about that, it's real politics in that when there is a country, a smaller country, that it was on the border of a great power. Cuba in the in the missile crisis in the in the Cuban missile crisis, Taiwan now, which isn't which is part of China, but uh, uh, any any country that's bordered between great powers maintains a certain level of jeopardy and liability just from their geopolitical, just from their uh, their their location that has to be taken into account. That we can't pretend that these dynamics don't exist, regardless of what we talk about as fair or unfair. Cuba, Taiwan, Ukraine uh, being examples. Uh, your well, thoughts? The flip, the flip side of this is also important to keep in mind that great powers uh, assume that status because they have the ability to inflict damage on other countries. And that's the part at this point that worries me. In other words, the actions taken by great powers vis-a-vis smaller powers are understandable and go back uh, in history as, as far as the Peloponnesian Wars. That attitude can be traced that the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. But it has also been understood that you don't trample on the rights uh, and interests of countries that can hurt you uh, because of, the, of that potential for retaliatory damage. And I'm not sure we have a correct assessment of the damage that Russia could inflict on the United States and on the West. And that seems to me to be remarkably foolish uh, in our policy, uh, that we seem to be thinking of Russia as a third world country when in its military, especially in some things I've been reading about its uh, its military actions, uh, and their success or reputed lack of success in Ukraine, um, we see these as forced upon Russia rather than as a choice of a strategy to pursue not to damage Ukraine more than it needs to be damaged in order to achieve Russian objectives. And this seems to me to be a fundamentally uh, wrong and dangerous misreading of Russian capabilities that I hope doesn't lead the United States into, well, even more foolish actions. We've been talking with Professor Nikolai Petro, a professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, specializing in Ukraine and Russia. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The current state of liberalism has transformed into an authoritarian ideology that supports U.S. hegemony and international finance capital. Joining us to discuss this matter, we have Ajamu Baraka. He's a former VP candidate with the Green Party. Ajamu, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Glad to be here. Thank you. Danny Haifong 
in his article, The Road to Hell, brought to you by Liberalism, writes, Elon Musk's purchase of the Twitter platform was a hotly debated topic, but neither Musk nor any other individual is the root of the world's problems. Liberalism, which pretends to oppose capitalism and U.S. state hegemony, but which is, an, in fact, an ally, is the problem. Uh, Ajamu Baraka, your thought. Okay, Danny is on to something. Uh, the, the issue we have is that there's been a uh, an ideological transformation in the sense that the kind of the kind of reform liberalism that we had in place from the 1930s up through the 1970s, late 1970s, uh, is no longer um, viable. That uh, with the turn toward neoliberalism, we had a return to classical liberalism that uh, preached, you know, an expansive uh, role of, of private capital and a re- reduced role for the for the state. Um, it, it, it emphasized individualism, and it provided an ideological justification for uh, aggressive militarism. Uh, it was somewhat kept in check even after the demise of the Soviet Union. But with the current uh, uh, capitalist crisis, we find that uh, all pretexts to some of the elements of, of classical liberalism when it comes to issues around uh, commitment to uh, free speech, uh, um, and, and thought has been completely tossed out of the window. Now, as Danny is suggesting, uh, neoliberalism has uh, now morphed into a justification for more uh, censorship, uh, for reducing the uh, range of acceptable uh, discourse, um, and it is being used as an instrument uh, to uh, further the hegemony of the of the uh, northern and western uh, capitalist class, so we have something that's really uh, a, a different animal than we've had uh, over the last uh, seventy years when it comes to the the liberal uh, framework and liberal worldview. You know, one of the things I find of consequence and interesting is that you know during the Cold War you had the Cold War, the Scoop Jackson Democrats, which tried to outright the Republicans, which tried to out. Uh, hate uh, socialism and communism. And it appears to me that that is the very strain of liberalism um, or worse, that is um, in power now in that currently they have gone to the right of the Republicans in supporting outright Nazis and fascists in Ukraine unabashedly and arguing to their, you know, arguing the moral merit of, of, of supporting fascism and Nazism to their base, uh, some of which have, you know, found the uh, a merit in their argument, shall we say. Your thoughts? Well, I think that's true. I think that the Scoop Jackson Democrats were the first sort of iteration of the of the move to the right, of the abandonment of, of what I refer to as reform liberalism. Um, it was part of the shift to the political right by the entire society. Uh, that was then reflected in the emergence of various um, uh, candidates that uh, uh, ascended to power in the Democratic Party, uh, people like uh, Bill Clinton, which was really uh, the first uh, expression of the ascendancy to power by the uh, neoliberals in the Democratic Party. And they have continued to shift to the right uh, ever since. And as a matter of fact, because of the shift to the right and because of the uh, changes taking place within the Republican Party uh, that came up under the sway of the neocons, you see that there is an ideological uh, blending or merging, if you will, a convergence uh, of, of neocons who were situated in the Republican Party 
uh, and the neoliberals um, in the Democratic Party, the, the, the neoliberals who were the liberal interventionists. So this merging has resulted in some very interesting kinds of, of, of political expressions, including what you just referred to. That is this, 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 this common commitment to upholding the interests of the, of the white West has compelled them to engage in all kinds of ideological gymnastics, including uh, rehabilitating and whitewashing the, the, the neo-fascists in Ukraine all to advance their interests. So it's a very dangerous ideological development because it's disarming uh, the traditional left. The left is confused. Uh, they are taking these moralistic positions when it comes to Ukraine, and they're missing what is happening uh, with the kind of material interest being expressed by this convergence of neocons uh, and neoliberals who are committed to uh, advancing the interests of transnational capital that happens to be based in the U.S. What are your thoughts on the role of the black leadership class uh, in this? The, you know, James Clyburn, we've seen that, you know, whether it was Bernie Sanders or Nina Turner or anyone who even showed a strain of progressivism in particularly in the economic sphere, um, that James Clyburn was the first one to step to uh, step up to the plate to make sure that they were crushed. What are your thoughts on the, the Congressional Black Caucus, the black leadership class, the black traditional uh, power organizations and their part in this ideological transformation of the of liberalism? Well, look, you know, we know that they are basically ideological servants of, of white power. You know, you and I have been around long enough to remember when the uh, Congressional Black Caucus referred to itself as the conscience of the of Congress. And to a certain extent, they, they were. You have some bona fide progressives with me and, and, and even radicals in the Congressional Black Caucus. But as we have talked on a number of occasions, as the country has moved toward the right, we've seen the same thing happen in these leadership structures of the black community, including the Congressional Black Caucus. The Congressional Black Caucus is now, I think, legitimately seen as part of what we refer to as the missed leadership class. Uh, their interest basically is the interest of upholding uh, of white imperialist capitalist power. Uh, their role is to uh, to be the uh, the managers of, of the natives, uh, to be the uh, explainers to the natives in terms of what kinds of policies are going to be pursued and should be uh, accepted and legitimized. Uh, they are the, the quintessential uh, House Negroes. So they are part of the problem that we are facing in the, U in the U.S. today. Uh, and that's why we believe that you have to target these individuals uh, as part of this ideological struggle, this ideological pushback, because if we don't have an ideological shift, um, then there's not going to be uh, uh, activists, there's not going to be uh, a movement uh, on the ground on the part of the, of the people uh, to, to counter the kind of right-wing politics that are now hegemonic uh, and are really undermining the ability of people to even survive physically. Left versus right. You know, the, the traditional left, the actual origin of the left was, of course, in the French parliament, where the people who physically sat on the left tended to support the policies of the masses, and the people who physically sat on the right tended to support the policies of the nobility and of the, the crown, of the, court, the king's court. Now it appears to me, and I'm going to ask you about this, I'm going to throw this out, 
about that left when we use the terms left right in America what the neoliberal class um, has attempted to do successfully in many instances is change left into something that is not related to economic class and economic struggle but is related to um, cultural issues of you know gay trans minorities they come up with names like BIPOC black or indigenous people of color things of that nature and completely divorce the term left from any economic struggle so that these terms now are not related to the original ideological intent or ideological definitions at any rate left versus right in America today and in in the West period your thoughts well, that those terms are almost meaningless today because, as you as you uh, indicated, they their their original original meanings have have shifted. Um, the politics have shifted. So, uh, what what is evoked when you use the terms that has nothing to do with the classical use of those terms. So, when we talk about love, when the mainstream media, for example, will talk about the love. Uh, they're not talking about the same left that we're talking about. They are talking about liberals, for example. Um, and so you, you're absolutely right. Part of what has happened is this move away from the uh, material interest uh, toward looking at these cultural kinds of issues, these behaviorist kinds of, of, of issues uh, to explain politics, uh, the personality of different people, of Putin or Biden or whatever. Uh, so this is... This, 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 the whole uh, framework of understanding what is supposed to be a progressive politics or left politics is part of the terrain of struggle. The re, uh, not just reimagination, but the reinterpretation of what those things mean. But one of the things that has to happen, and you, you, you touched on it, is for people to, to begin to ground their understanding of these terms in the material realities, in the material relationships the class relationships, because when you divorce the, the, those understandings from the economic interests, then you have the kind of confusion we see today with policies that are being supported by the masses, billions of dollars being sent to Ukraine, uh, as, opposed, as opposed to money being spent to provide basic protections, like protection against what they see and they know is coming as a new wave of COVID. So these are the kinds of contradictions we see emerge when you have these kind of, of, of theoretical uh, framework confusion uh, and ideological lack of, of, of clarity. Let me ask you about this. I think the big issue right now for a number of reasons is not left versus right as much as it is imperialist versus anti-imperialist. Narendra Modi in, in uh, India is clearly on the right and Viktor Orban is clearly on the right. Uh, Vladimir Putin is clearly a traditional uh, cultural conservative, etc. But the decisions that these countries are making, add China, add the socialist of Venezuela, the, the on and on, right? Again, Iran, a traditionally very conservative, culturally conservative uh, uh, um, uh, place. But the issue of anti-imperialism seems to have created, shall we say, strange bedfellows culturally in that these countries seem to now be coming together based on fighting the imperialist empire or resisting the imperialist imp empire. And it seems to me that's more important than some left-right thing. Or, or am I missing something? Well, I mean, it's clearly a, sort of a, a an ideological redivision of the world, if you will, uh, that reflects the the physical redivision that's being struggled out 
uh, by these various uh, ruling classes that are in competition with one another. I mean, the fact of the matter is, the, 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 the capitalist system is a world system. And these various nations that you referred to are nations who are looking out for their own uh, national interests. Uh, within those nations, you have some that are straight-up uh, uh, capitalists with some imperialist uh, um, ambitions. And you have others that are still capitalists but who are committed to trying to engage in a process of socialist construction. Um, so, you know, again, it, it, all of these sort of uh, uh, categories – you know, uh, are still being uh, uh, redefined. Um, you know, but I, I wouldn't want to put too much into what some people are seeing as uh, sort of uh, a, a, a basis of solidarity uh, among these nations that have a, a, a collective interest in, in resisting uh, the traditional uh, northern imperialist uh, nations, but who have their own set of, of contradictions. Uh, that suggests that even if they're going to uh, be uh, in opposition to U.S. and European imperialism, uh, they still represent in many ways some uh, fairly retrograde uh, nations that uh, don't really reflect the kind of new world that we want to ultimately build. Very interesting. And I think this is a very interesting that this is the ideological and philosophical um, uh, conversation that needs to be had now because there are countries that have mutual interests in resisting imperialism. But again, if they can respect each other's sovereignty, then they can respect those cultural differences. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Ajamu Baraka. Ajamu is a former vice presidential candidate with the Green Party. He's with the Black Alliance for Peace, right? Often for the Black Agenda Report. Thank you very much. Hope to have you again soon, Ajamu. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. A Hollywood lawyer has paid $2 million in taxes for Hunter Biden and is said to be financing his extravagant California lifestyle. Also, we discuss the backstory of the Steele dossier. Joining us to discuss this, we have John Kiriakou. John is a journalist, author, and host of the show right here on Radio Sputnik, Political Misfits. John, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you, Garland. Thanks for having me. So we got something really weird here. The, the the New York Post reports that a big shot Hollywood lawyer reportedly paid off Hunter Biden's delinquent taxes, which a source told the Post amounted to more than two million dollars as President Biden's notoriously troubled son awaits the results of a Delaware grand jury's investigation into his personal finances. Um, the attorney, his name's Kevin Morris. He was the uh, he represented the co-creators of South Park, won a Tony Award as a co-producer of the book of of Mormon. Wow. John, your thoughts on all of this? Uh, it just seems like money finds its way to Hunter Biden. Man, why can't I be that dude minus the crack pipe? John. Seriously. Uh, you know, where do you even begin? The, the New York Post is calling uh, this guy a sugar buddy, uh, which is really what it comes down to. I, I, I would love to have somebody just offer up $2 million to pay all my bills and my taxes and, and whatnot. And to the best of our knowledge, he hasn't asked for anything in return, right? 
Uh, he, he didn't ask for these wonderful artworks, for example, that Hunter Biden is, uh, is painting and trying to sell to a gallery in L.A. He just came up with the money. Well, I mean, you and I have been in Washington a long time. We know how the city works. There's always a quid pro quo. Always. That's just the way life is. Uh, we don't know yet what this quid pro quo is, but man, something really uh, smells fishy here. You know, and and it's usually like the, this, John. It's one of, and you know, it's one of two things: either I'm paying you for access. Or, and this it has been my experience more likely than this, it's kind of like when, when um, uh, a quarterback gets the big, um, co- the, the big uh, um, contract. He's getting a big contract because he's already thrown a lot of touchdowns, because he's already performed and he's already won. And the question becomes here, to me, there's only one question about the quid pro quo. Is this for future access or, to me, which is more likely amongst the wealthy people that I'm dealing with, he's being paid because this guy is – that's just like a tiny portion of what this guy has earned as a result of his access through Hunter Biden. Yeah, this has to be access. If you look back to uh, Bill Clinton and then Hillary Clinton and then Barack Obama, they, they all had – really close ties with Hollywood people and with Hollywood money. They did a lot of fundraising out there. They were flying out to L.A. all the time. Joe Biden is not that way. Joe Biden's not the Hollywood candidate. So why would this Hollywood money be going to his son? Why would this guy cough up $2 million, what, just out of the goodness of his heart? To me, this is about future access. And, you know, I don't think that it's just this one attorney either. The last time I was in L.A., I went to see a friend of mine in Venice, California, and we went to one of the canals, and he pointed out the house where Hunter Biden was living. He was renting this place. It was surrounded by Secret Service. And these little 1,200-square-foot bungalows, they're, they're $2.5 million houses. Well, since then, this was in September, since then, Hunter Biden has moved into a $6 million rental house in, uh, in Malibu, and the Secret Service had to rent the $6 million house next door for them to live in. This money has to be coming from somewhere, and, and God knows he's not making it selling paintings. So either somebody's taking care of him, or he's living on uh, the proceeds of his notorious uh, business activities in places like Ukraine and China. I don't know what to make of it. Yeah. You know, every time I see, you know, recently I saw where President Biden signed some executive order where the U.S. State Department was going to be looking into corruption cases in Haiti. Or we say the U.S. grabbed Alex Saab from Venezuela and they said he's involved in corruption against the Venezuelan government, which might I add, if he was involved in corruption against the Venezuelan government, it would be the Venezuelan government that would prosecute him, not the U.S. But every time I hear this facade, it's like human rights, this facade of corruption. But when you when you Pull up the hood on this administration, and not just this administration, let's be honest, on this beast on Capitol Hill period for the last umpteen years. Go back to Dick Cheney and on and on. Corruption is the way things are done, John. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. And, uh, and you know, we like, to, we like to put on a brave face and say how we're a, a transparent country, a, a transparent government. Uh, we don't have corruption. That's nonsense. Of course we have corruption. In many cases, it's built into the system. That's what lobbying is, for example. 
And so, you know, this is one of those cases where we've got a guy who is probably corrupt. That's not necessarily to say that he's broken the law, but uh, a lot of people are taking a look at it, whether it's a grand jury in Delaware or whether it is uh, the Justice Department or whether it's going to be uh, starting next year. Uh, a congressional subcommittee under the control of the Republican Party. That's uh, it, just the nature of the system we've given ourselves. Another interesting article, and I'm going to make a comment on this, uh, Wall Street Journal, the surprising backstory of how the Steele dossier was cre- was created, report that rattled the political world, often echoed chatter among three friends, one a former schoolmate of the main investigator. Here's what I want to say about that. A few days ago, Rand Paul got great accolades for attacking the new, you know, what Scary Poppins or whatever her name is, and the uh, and, and, and the governance disinformation board. Ironically, he pushed disinformation while he was doing it. Ironically, he said, "Well, do we even know? Don't we 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 know that the Russians." Um, provided disinformation for the Steele dossier. And even in this article, it implies that the Russians gave disinformation to the Steele dossier, which on its face is absurd for this reason. We'd have to believe that the Russians wanted the Americans to believe that they were interfering in the election, which is, uh, it's turning reality inside out. But at any rate, there's a lot to talk about in the Steele dossier. But what do you think of, we've heard this absurd inside out assertion over and over that, yes, possibly the Russians were actually giving information, false information to steal that because they wanted him to write a document that said that they were interfering in the election. It is uh, just that part of it. It's so preposterous to me. That is a perfect example of the absurdity of the Steele dossier, but the absurdity of those who report on it who can't even talk about the Steele dossier without adding disinformation themselves, John. Totally agree. And, and the word that you used is, is really the appropriate word here. It's absurd. It doesn't make any sense at all. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed, too, and, and this was worst at MSNBC, is they use phrases like, um, like Kremlin-associated or ties to the Russians. Well, what, what does that mean? For example, they'll say, They'll say, well, uh, so-and-so who works for this Internet farm outside of Moscow has ties to the Kremlin. Well, but well, what does that mean, ties to the Kremlin? It's like saying, well, uh, I gave $20 to a Democratic candidate uh, in, in uh, North Carolina because he's a buddy of mine. Do I have ties to the Democratic National Committee? I, I don't, but... By this uh, logic, I can be accused of having ties. Well, now every time you hear of any Russian or anything that has to do with the the Steele dossier, which is utterly unreliable, it's because of ties to the Russian government, ties to Vladimir Putin, connections to Russian intelligence. It's just made up. It's absurd. When we look at the Steele dossier, one of the things they, they bring up very early is that Charles Dolan Jr. wrote an email about it. And he said, I'm hoping this is exposed as fake news. I will check with some folks in the intel world to see if they know who produced that. Well, that automatically argues that he has connections to the intel world. The only problem is he didn't have to check to see whether it was fake news because he uh, he was one of the people, a Clinton operative, the Clinton people 
paid for this dossier and then still goes to a Clinton operative to get information for the dossier, which, of course, is Chuck Dolan. Your thoughts? Yeah, uh, this is all circular reporting. It's all it's all just a bunch of guys sitting around making things up uh, and then reporting to each other what the other one has said. And then all of a sudden it becomes intelligence. I remember when the Steele dossier was first made public, I said to Brian Becker, um, my former co-host at uh, Loud and Clear, I said, um, by its very nature, intelligence is unreliable. It's unreliable because it's, it's based on human sources. And people either lie or they're misinformed. They'll, they'll lie for a whole bunch of reasons, maybe to, to uh, turn a debate or to get their point of view across and to discredit somebody else's point of view. Or they want to impress the person that they're talking to. And so even if they don't know, they just talk and pretend like they do know. That's how the Steele dossier read to me. It read like silliness, like people sitting around just making things up. And in the end, that's exactly what it was proven to be. It was all just lies. Here's the other part of it. You know, John, I worked for a period of time on uh, terrorism stuff with the FBI's JTTF, Joint Terrorism Task Force. I'm in a room with these guys. Most of them had postgraduate degrees, master's degrees, you name it, right? These people weren't stupid. They were well-educated. As soon as I looked at the Steele dossier within, I mean, skimming over it, I'm like, oh, well, this is trash. Well, this is lies. It's garbage. It is preposterous on its face, which says this to me. You would have to believe that the that the FBI is populated by morons in order to believe that they thought this was real. Either one of two things has to be true. Either they are blithering idiots or it was a scam. They knew it was true. And they and it was they were all part of they were all on the end. And, 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 and I already know because I work with them. They're not idiots, which means that Durham has to do a cover up because he can't come out and say clearly the FBI was involved in this and they were part of this. So they have to be charged. All, all, all of them that in, in fact, w- what would happen to our democracy if the truth of what happened here were to come out, John? Oh, the, the, the whole system would fall apart because you're exactly right. If Durham were really going to prosecute wrongdoing here, he would have to lock up half of the players involved. He would have to lock up the FBI. He would have to lock up people in the Justice Department. He'd have to lock up people in the media, for heaven's Good sake. Good point. The, Clinton, the whole never, Clinton campaign. The whole Clinton yeah, leadership. The whole Clinton campaign. Absolutely. Absolutely. They were all in on it. They knew it was false and they continued to promote it and they promoted it as fact. That's why Michael Sussman is going on on trial next next Monday for lying to the FBI, because he knew that it was false. And not only did he lie about it being factual, but he lied about representing the, uh, the Clinton campaign. And, and the other part is this. You know, I did this stuff for a living. The idea that they presented, the FBI presented this crock of garbage to the FISA court and they didn't know that it was false and they signed off on it. Every one of them is supposed to go to jail for that, John. Yeah. In fact, they did it three separate times, too. They didn't just go to the FISA court once with the lie. They went three separate times and they kept repeating the lie. And if you're Carter Page where your government has truly wronged you, where they've denied you your civil liberties, 
They've denied you your, your day in court to confront your accusers in a court of law. Then there ought to be, there ought to be something, some remedy for Carter Page. But again, because the fix was in from the beginning, if you're Carter Page, you're just out of luck. You're right, because the whole system has to fall in order for you to get justice. And that ain't happening, is it? Thanks a lot. We've been talking with John Kiriakou, journalist, author, host of The Political Misfit Show right here on Radio Sputnik. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Eritrea and Ethiopia have been able to agree on a peace deal, but the U.S. empire is working to undo stability in the Horn of Africa. Also, we discussed the former TPLF operative who is running the World Health Organization. Joining us to discuss, discuss this, we have historian and journalist Thomas C. Mountain. Thomas, welcome to The Critical Hour. It is an honor to be here. Great to have you on. In Counterpunch, April 17, 2020, you wrote an article. The gangster head of the WHO, the head of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Adhaman Ghebreyesus, um, was a senior capo for the Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF, gangster mafia that ruled Ethiopia from 1991 to 2018. What do we need to know about the, the person whose name I just botched up, Thomas? Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus was one of the top three capos in the Tigray People's Liberation Front, otherwise known as the TPLF which ruled Ethiopia from 1991 to 2018. Up until 2012, the godfather of this organization was one Mela Sinawi, who was personally recruited by the CIA way back in 1980 and promoted to be head of the TPLF and subsequently head of Ethiopia when the TPLF came to power in 1991. Now, Tedros was one of Mela's closest personal friends, he was the Minister of Health for years, became the Minister of Finance be- until he basically fled the country and took over with CIA vetting the World Health Organization in 2018. And in uh, any case, uh, Tedros was personally responsible for overseeing the genocide that took place in the Somali Ogaden, the Somali ethnic Somali area in Ethiopia called the Ogaden up until 2018. In this capacity, he oversaw a food and medical aid blockade of the Ogaden from 2007 until 2018. There's some of the worst droughts and famines in the history of the region. And not only did he oversee this food and medical aid blockade and uh, uh, Red Cross, he also instigated the these death squads. I had an article called uh, "Feeding Death Squads," and uh, it's about how the uh, world, the UN, like they're doing now in Ethiopia, and they've done other places, used to truck enormous amounts of wheat into the Ogaden and turned it over to the death squad uh, paramilitaries that were carrying out a scorched earth policy to try to crush the insurgency led by the Ogaden People's Liberation Front which had launched an attack on 
a Chinese drilling operation that they'd warned China not to do. And, uh, and subsequently, the Ethiopian government under Melisanawi, TPLF under Melisanawi, instituted this uh, food and medical aid blockade to try to, if you, you know, if you can't uh, catch the fish, drain the lake, right? So um, Tedros oversaw all this, and something. this has been documented. The crimes he's committed have been documented by a Nobel Peace Prize nominee investigative journalist that's been submitted to the uh, International Criminal Court. Actually, something I call, you know, it's international Caucasian court because they never investigate any real criminals in Africa. But um, any case, Tedros oversaw this genocide, and uh, it was you know tremendous suffering inflicted upon the Somali people of the Ogaden. And something that's never been looked at was the fact that there were not one but two cholera outbreaks in the Ogaden at this point. Now, cholera is a waterborne disease, and it's easy to trace. It travels through regions. And there was no uh, no cholera anywhere reported in any of the neighbors around the Ogaden. The only place in Ethiopia where cholera is endemic is in Tigai, the homeland of Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. Now, how did cholera come to Tigai, to Ogaden, if it never showed up in any of the neighbors? And not once, but twice. Well, Dr. I call him Tedros the terrorist, uh, you know, as Minister of Health, could have easily had samples of cholera throughout the country. So, and you know, at, so cholera is raging in the Ogaden. How did it get there? I mean, none of the neighbors around the region had any cholera. And it's a waterborne disease, so it had to have been transported somehow into the Ogaden. Now, the only place in Ethiopia that cholera is endemic is in Tigray, the homeland of Dr. Tedros, the terrorist is what I call him, Tedros the terrorist. And it would have been very easy for him to have his henchmen collect uh cholera samples and inject them into wells in, in the Ogaden and spread this as a part of their genocidal counterinsurgency campaign to try to write, uh, wipe out the, the resistance to the, you know, to the exploitation of the natural gas resources of the Ogaden by the TPLF regime in power in Ethiopia. So, you know, Tedros, I mean, the World Health Organization is, has been primarily funded by the U.S. So basically the CIA gets the debt, whoever gets the the head of the the World Health Organization. And since Tedros carried out this genocide, you know, he's a prime, you know, qualified to head the WHO. So, you know, they put him in power. Now Tedros is, you know, WHO is getting a lot of money from Bill Gates, and he's Tedros is running around uh, promoting Bill Gates' latest book. So, you know, he, this guy's got a long history of crimes committed against his own people. He's a wanted man in Ethiopia. He's an indicted war criminal and you know, crimes against humanity by the Ethiopian government. He cannot return home. And yet this guy is glorified as some kind of a hero internationally, which is, I think, all too typical these days. You know, it, white is black and up is down and Tedros is a hero. No, he's a genocidal criminal. He's a wanted man in his homeland. And yet, you know, he's uh, welcomed by a good buddy of the head of the U.N., Guterres. And, and uh, you know, it's like... Uh, you know, the world is just, you know, criminals run the world. You know how it goes. Well, let me ask you this for people listening that don't know about the TPLF. I've heard it. Re- I've heard it regarded as a ethno-fascist organization, um, as a, uh, a tool of the U.S. empire that, you know, that is being used to try to wage war against the independence of and sovereignty of Ethiopia. How would you describe it? What do people need to know about the TPLF out there that haven't heard of it, et cetera? Well, you know, 
I wrote an article way back in 1983 called them, calling them Afro-Nazis because they've, the way they treat the rest of Ethiopia is like they're the master race. And even though they're the smallest, most despised uh, ethnic group in Ethiopia, at one point, a thousand years ago, they were, they were the power in the region. So they've been reclaiming this, what they call Aksumite heritage. But, you know, they're, they're a, a particularly brutal, corrupt, and genocidal organization that's done everything they can to divide uh, Ethiopia around ethnic lines. Now, you know, a lot of your listeners out there may not, I mean, Ethiopia is far away. It's the Horn of Africa. What's so important about Ethiopia? Why should they care? Well, Ethiopia is in the Horn of Africa, and the Horn of Africa, you know, is part of, the Red Sea is part of the Horn of Africa, and the two largest trading partners in the world, Europe and Asia, have most of their trade go through the Red Sea. Now, the two critically strategic choke points on the Red Sea, one is in Egypt at the Suez Canal, and the other is the Bab al-Mandeb, the straits between the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. Now, the Egyptian military has their salaries paid by the U.S. via the CIA to the tune of $1.5 billion every year. So the, Red, the, the Suez Canal is under U.S. control, right? The Bab al-Mandeb is the problem, and this is one of the reasons why Ethiopia was appointed to be the the uh, U.S. policemen on the beat in the region, and one of the reasons why the U.S. is supporting, continuing to support the Saudi war in, in Yemen. Because, you know, I used to say that the day the U.S. loses control of the Baab al-Mandeb is the day that marks the beginning of the end of the U.S. empire. Well, the U.S. empire with the war in Ukraine now is it's beginning to end, right? But that's how, that's how critically strategic the Horn of Africa is to the U.S. Whether you and I understand this, the CIA and the U.S. National Security Establishment are very clear on this. This is why when there was a peaceful revolution in Ethiopia in 2018, the, uh, uh, in Eritrea and Ethiopia came to a peace agreement. And they've been enemies for, since you know, 1998. And now the Ethiopian people and the Eritrean people are brothers and sisters. And you know, one thing that's become clear is that uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, who you know, helped lead this peaceful revolution, went to Eritrea, made the peace deal with Eritrea, and praised Eritrea and said we, Ethiopia needs to emulate Eritrea because Eritrea is a revolutionary socialist country. They don't kneel down to the world. They're food self-sufficient. You know, nobody can tell them what to do. They're, and uh, Ethiopia needs to be that way, and Abiy recognized that. And he pointed out a number of very positive things about Eritrea that Eritrea, the Ethiopia needs to emulate. Now, this freaked out the CIA because Eritrea has been one of their main enemies in Africa. And the fact that Ethiopia has been their policeman on the beat and, you know, funded to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. I mean, for years and years, the 90 percent of all the Western aid and loan debt forgiveness was for Ethiopian debt. To the tune of about $10 billion a year, they were popping up the TPLF regime. So, you know, there are, I call them Afro-Nazis because there's so many similarities of what's going on in Ukraine now and what's been happening in Ethiopia since uh, November of 2020 when the TPLF launched a, uh, t a, with the CIA instigation and support, launched an attempted coup against the Ethiopian government because Ethiopia was going the way of Eritrea. They're going to become an independent, uh, anti-neocolonialist government and building pan-Africanism, genuine on-the-ground pan-Africanism in Africa. In my opinion, this was the, the most significant breakthrough in pan-Africanism and against neocolonialism and in Africa since independence movement started, neocolonialism started after World War II. So, um, you know, they're, they're targeted 
Abiy Ahmed for overthrow because he was leading Ethiopia down the path of self-sufficiency, which is, you know, I mean, the World Bank and IMF puts billions of dollars into countries with specific aim of making them aid-dependent, food-dependent, to make them kneel down and follow the orders of their Western masters. And one of the ways they do this is preventing them with their loans from becoming food self-sufficient. They have to grow things, produce things for export to pay off the loans they made to, they borrowed from the from the IMF and the World Bank and these Western institutions, the banksters, we call them, right? So you've got a situation where uh, Ethiopia is moving to be self-sufficient. Now, Ethiopia is one of the three biggest countries in Africa. And Eritrea is a small little country, four million people. They're easily to ignore, but they can, the West cannot ignore Ethiopia because where Ethiopia goes becomes the role model for the rest of Africa. Ethiopia is historically the poor man of Africa, the home of famine and war and misery. And uh, now Ethiopia is standing up and saying, no, we're going to have peace. We're going to have prosperity. We're going to become the land of milk and honey. And the rest of Africa is looking at that and saying, hey, if Ethiopia can do this, why can't we? Why do we have to kneel down to neocolonialism? Why can't we be independent? Why can't our lives start getting better? And the West is saying, hey, you know, especially Europe. Europe is economically in many ways dependent on the super exploitation that they do in in Africa, where they go in and they, you know, they pay a, a pittance and royalties for gold and oil and all these other things, and then uh, sell a lot of the refined oil and everything back for a fortune to the Africans, and they take the raw materials and use it you know, to create super profits in Europe, and use that to prop up the, the European regimes, whereby they can bribe the European people with a relatively rich lifestyle and subsidize their education, housing, and healthcare, and they're doing it on the sweat and blood and hard work of the African people. Now, if Ethiopia turns the tide and Ethiopia makes a breakthrough, this is a, a threat of a good example to the rest of Africa. And Europe and the United States are very, very concerned about this. That's why they unleashed the TPLF, who had been removed from national power in 2018 in the Peaceful Revolution and instigated a coup, you know, attempt in 2000, uh, November 20th and 2020. So this coup, the Ethiopia, the TPLF tried to seize the largest military arms depot in Ethiopia, and they failed. In the process, they took several thousand prisoners and massacred their own people, what they call their own people, the Ethiopian military, supposed to be their brothers and sisters. And But the Ethiopian army that was uh, in charge of that base fought back and prevented the takeover. Now, what happened next was, you see, the TPLF used to be 85 percent. It looks like you have a very in-depth knowledge of that region and of that history, and I'm looking forward to, get, to getting you back soon to, 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 to okay, learn more. Thanks for having me on. All right. That's Thomas C. Mountain. You can find him on uh, Twitter, and he's written a lot of great stuff uh, over at uh, Counterpunch and lots of other places. Thomas Mountain, thank you very much. You are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. 
The head of Hezbollah is arguing that political entities pushing to disarm the organization are trying to sell Lebanon to the West. Joining us to discuss the upcoming Lebanon elections, we have Laith Marouf. Laith is a broadcaster and journalist based out of Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. The Secretary General of the Lebanese Hezbollah Resistance Movement has denounced calls by some political parties for the disarmament of the movement in the run-up to next week's parliamentary elections, saying the demand comes amid those parties' utter disregard for the worsening economic crisis in the country. Laith, your thoughts on uh, what's going on with Hezbollah? Certainly the Secretary General had a, had a recent speech. Uh, what, what do you think about the speech and the, um, what kind of a reaction have you heard? Well, uh, this uh, was the speech from yesterday that we're speaking, talking about. It is part of the electoral campaign. The the voting uh, final day uh, is happening on Sunday, um, which falls also on the Palestinian Nakba Day, the 15th of May. Um, already much of the diaspora voted in, in, in embassies of Lebanon. And now today also that that speech from yesterday was directed at audiences in the south of Lebanon. And he delivered a second speech that just uh, finished a few minutes ago, uh, directed at uh, the residents of Beirut, where he spoke more about internal issues of Lebanon. As you noted, the speech yesterday was focused mainly on the uh, right to resist and the uh, right to hold arms um, and resistance to Israel, and as as noted by Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, the uh, the core campaign uh, uh, a subject that has been in this election by the and the opposition to Hezbollah has been its arms, which makes it uh, clearly the center issue of the election, and therefore this is as Sayyid Nasrallah said is a war war by other means uh, trying to achieve what the Zionists couldn't achieve in 2006 through military aims uh, when they invaded Lebanon to disarm Hezbollah, and now they're trying to do it through a political war, uh, an election. What do you think are the main factors that will be debating voters coming up, the big issues that are going to drive people either to or away from the polls and make and base their decision, what their decisions will be based on the direction that they go in? Yeah, it's uh, clear that uh, the alliance with Hezbollah is, uh, and their voters are going to be voting in a principled way that they are there to protect uh, the resistance and uh, guarantee that there's no uh, domination by any sect in the country. And uh, on the other hand, the opposition to Hezbollah, we know that the Sunni um, political parties are in disarray after the uh, stepping down of uh, Hariri and the dissolution of the um, future party that he ran, and which means that the vote of the Sunni uh, population is going to be dispersed amongst many new faces that uh, will not be able to probably garner uh, much of the votes. Uh, That's above and beyond the fact that many of the Sunnis will 
most probably just not vote because of uh, not finding somebody that they know who to vote for. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the the third largest, um, you know, sect, the, the Christian population of Lebanon, uh, there is a battle between uh, the uh, the party of the president of uh, Lebanon, um, uh, the Patriotic Movement, and the, the two other Christian parties that uh, collaborated with Israel during its occupation. And it seems uh, that those who collaborated with Lebanon, uh, with Israel in the occupation of Lebanon, are be- becoming the uh, only tools that the West can depend on. And uh, of course, because of uh, the, vac- the, the the sectarian vote system in Lebanon, it means that uh, these, uh, you know, collaborationist Christian parties cannot really capture the Muslim uh, Sunni uh, vote and therefore will not be able to deliver to their masters on uh, what they need. Saad al-Hiri, you know, he did, you know, kind of shockingly with, with, withdrew um, from the really politics. What is the story on that? What's the background? Why do you think that he just dropped out like that? Um, was that, you know, did he think maybe that he didn't have a have much of a chance or was there that what do you know about his surprising withdrawal from um, from the race? Well, it's uh, clear that uh, the Saudis and the Americans were requesting from Saad Hariri and before him, uh, his martyred uh, father that also was a prime minister uh, of Lebanon, they were demanding the, that the Hariri uh, dynasty basically directs the Sunni population of Lebanon towards a civil war with the Shia components of the country uh, to disarm Hezbollah. And uh, of course, uh, as, as we saw uh, with his father, it seems that both of them refused to deliver on that. So the as, as Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah said in a few of his speeches when, when he talked about the plot to create a civil war in Lebanon, those who can deliver on a civil war, meaning the Sunni uh, leaders, uh, do not want a civil war. And those who cannot deliver on a civil war, meaning these uh, Christian supremacist parties that collaborated with Israel, cannot actually deliver on it. And therefore, uh, we saw his father being assassinated in 2005 um, in order to, and, and, and that assassination being blamed on Syria in order to force the withdrawal of Syrian air defenses from Lebanon to allow Israel to invade in 2006, and that plot failed. And in the situation of his son, um, uh, Saad Hariri, uh, when uh, the elections happened in 2018 in, in Lebanon, and uh, he was appointed as prime minister, the Saudis brought him to Riyadh, and as one, many of your listeners may remember, tied him to a chair, slapped him silly, and forced him to resign live on air from Riyadh as a prime minister of Lebanon. And he was only saved and his family were saved only because Hezbollah and the president of Lebanon refused his resignation and demanded his return to uh, Beirut. And so obviously Hariri, uh, Saad Hariri have decided that it's not worth it, that uh, he will not cause a civil war, even though that he doesn't like Hezbollah or or he leads the Sunni population in Lebanon, he will not do that. And it's he if he continues in politics, refusing to deliver on a civil war that the Americans and the Saudis and the Israelis want, 
then his end will be exactly like his father's. Hezbollah, my understanding is that they have like 75 out of 121 parliamentary seats. Uh, 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 correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so they have a significant power that's, that's base. That's what their coalition their coalition. Their coalition. Not, uh, not, yes. Oh, OK. OK. Um, do you expect their coalition to grow, decrease or stay the same? And, and, and if, if whichever you choose, why? I, I believe the, the coalition led by Hezbollah will gain more seats in the elections. And, and, and part of it is clear, like I kind of explained, you know, the Sunni vote is dispersed. Many of the Sunnis are not going to go to vote. And uh, the Christian vote is split, uh, but also uh, actually the patriotic movement led by the president own has is going to gain also seats. Those uh, Christian phalange uh, parties that uh, the Saudis and the Americans are, are depending on are actually uh, producing really horrible propaganda that is, uh, you know, um, even, um, you know, putting off many of the Christian conservatives that could have been captured by them. And uh, so therefore, you know, we are in a very dangerous situation from now till Sunday when the uh, polling booths uh, close uh, in the evening of Sunday. uh, There's a very big chance that uh, the Israelis may trigger uh, a war to stop the rise of uh, Hezbollah's uh, coalition into full power in Lebanon. Um, this is why Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah alerted the Zionist yesterday and in his speech uh, a few weeks ago um, uh, on Quds Day, the Zionist that they, that all of the Hezbollah military force is on the highest alert and readiness. He actually referred today to that. Uh, that he uh, that Hezbollah received an international um, uh, messenger on behalf of the Zionists, uh, claiming that they will not be triggering a war. Uh, and Sayyid Nasrallah said he does not trust the Zionists and they will continue to be on the highest alertness. But do you think that uh, well, what are your thoughts about it? Do you think what do you what are your thoughts about what's happening with um, President Erdogan meeting with Saudi leaders in light of everything going on? Um, certainly, um, Turkey has significant economic woes that it has to has to take into consideration. Do you think it, this is just about economics or that there are other things involved? I mean, it's clear that uh, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood campaign uh, that was led by Obama, um, the Qatari regime and the Turks to to kind of uh, take over the Arabic world has failed. It's also clear that all the war efforts of uh, Erdogan in Syria and Iraq and in Armenia have mostly cost uh, Turkey too much and, and very little returns. And as we see now with Turkey uh, being engulfed in uh, a ring of fire of war from Ukraine to Georgia to Armenia, Azerbaijan to Iraq and Syria, it only has one you know, side of it that is not burning, which is with Greece. And, and so Turkey is trying to reposition itself. Erdogan is trying to reposition himself and uh, end any conflict within the imperialist camp in Western Asia. Uh, to prepare, because as as the United States is withdrawing, it's clear even for Turkey that the rise of Iran and the uh, axis of resistance is going to just accelerate. Uh, and therefore, you see the, the old animity or competition between uh, Erdogan and the Sauds for the goodwill of the empire 
um, is uh, now being uh, ended uh, and they're lining up together. What certainly appears to be a, an economic reorder, um, wherein China is really becoming a powerful economic player and there seems to be uh, some opportunities for people with new types of currencies, commodity-backed currencies, some things that will give economic opportunities outside of the U.S. dollar he- hegemon. Do you think that is having a uh, an effect on the region? Oh, of course. I mean, the Turkish lira is continues crashing while the uh, Russian ruble continues rising to historic records that have never been seen. So now in real value, the ruble is is, uh, more valuable than the dollar at this moment already. So we can see any of the economies that are dependent on uh, the uh, imperial order of finance are in shambles. Like uh, yesterday, I I went out shopping here in Montreal. I was looking for a few home electronics and the prices have gone just here in Montreal. So this is the shop owners were telling me 30% since December, the prices of basic uh, electronics, home, home devices and so forth. So you could imagine what is happening in Turkey, where it depends on export to, to Europe and the, and the West and is not in, you know, uh, trading uh, east and south since its uh, war with Syria. So here we have uh, the Western economies are going to be crashing very rapidly. And all of the smaller uh, feuds that may have existed within the imperial uh, camp will be minimized in order to absorb any of the shock. Yeah, I think you're right. I've always uh, argued that when when empires are really stressed and appear to be crashing, the biggest threat is from internal uprisings. And that's what I think President Erdogan is looking to stave off. Uh, thank you very much. We've been talking with Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The Saudi king is hospitalized after colonoscopy. Will will issues three, let me try that again, sorry about that, three, two. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The Saudi king is hospitalized after a colonoscopy. Will issues with the order of secession create instability in the kingdom should he lose his battle with health problems? Joining us to discuss this, we have Dr. David Walalu. He's an author and international security analyst. Dr. Walalu, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Good to be with you, Garland. Before we get started, you have a great, an, an excellent YouTube show that I, I never miss an episode. Could you tell our, our listeners about your uh, YouTube show and how they can, uh, how they can join and, and, and subscribe? Uh, certainly. It's called Geopolitics in Conflict. Um, that channel, basically, we share the knowledge about not only geopolitics and how we can impact your daily life, but also provide the knowledge for people to have a grasp of the issues that are taking place around the world when the governments uh, from some other countries are just lying to their people. So that's basically what we do on that channel. 
you have unique insight into the 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 the, uh, the dynamics of the Saudi royal family secession, etc. So let me get out of your way and explain to us what do we need to know about the Saudi king. Certainly, we wish him the best health. However, there's a reality. He's 86 years old, and anything could happen. And in the event that he doesn't um, win his battle with his current health problems sooner or later, as with all of us, mortality will kick in. What happens then? Well, uh, just uh, to let your listener know what qualifies me to talk about this topic. I worked in and visited Saudi Arabia officially representing the United States government on many, many occasions. So I speak the language fluently, and I grasp the depth of the kingdom, social, cultural, and religious interaction. And from both, abs- uh, from both abstract and practical perspective, uh, I truly understand how Saudi Arabia's internal politics work. So, so the idea of why uh, this topic is of great importance for your listeners to know, you know, some might think, well, Saudi Arabia is over there, has nothing to do with me. It does a big time, especially when it comes down to oil. And the issue with all this has to do with the succession, because that's where the key issue, as you mentioned at the introduction, the king is uh, King Salman, that is, is 86 years old. He is the last brother of the uh, son of the uh, founder of the Saudi uh, kingdom. So, so here's the thing. The history of Saudi Arabia has been marked by decades of internal struggle over succession to kinship among the royal family. Why? Because they form factions in opposition to each other. So to an outsider, to a Westerner, who is not familiar with the history of Saudi Arabia or the nature of its tribal mentality, it is a challenging attempt to understand the dynamics taking place within the Saudi royal palace when it comes down to succession. And what makes this even more problematic is that now the current crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS, kind of stepped in front of the line behind so many, like Mohammed bin Naif, who have been waiting for their turn over four or five decades. And that's what makes it very problematic. You know, I I, I remember, and this is something that, I, you know, I think should be taken into account. When uh, Mohammed bin Salman first got, came to power, I remember that he arrested a, a number of very powerful people in Saudi Arabia. He had them, he kept them at like a very expensive hotel, but all of them paid a significant amount of money prior to their being released. And I would think that could, shall we say, cause some hard feelings. Uh-huh. Well, you're absolutely correct, Galen. As a matter of fact, he did request and detain the royal members for them to purchase their freedom. And you know what? Among those royal members who were detained at the Ritz-Carlton, and I remember the hotel very well because we used to stay close by when I was in, in, in Riyadh, uh, uh, he is like, uh, he has some shares in Twitter and so forth. So the prince himself couldn't even stand up to MBS. Though. But here is the thing. How odd for the MBS to portray himself as one who champions change, and fiscal responsibility when some of the dark secrets have revealed, as I mentioned in my book, Beneath the Veil, Fall of the House of Saud, when he was revealed that he was the buyer of A, an expensive chateau, Louis XIV, with $300 million tax price. B, he was the purchaser of the Leonardo da Vinci painting, 
known as the Salvador del Mundo, savior of the world, for a price tag of $450 million, the most expensive art sale in history. And C, he was the purchaser of a $500 million yacht from a Russian vodka financier. So you can just see what type of leader this crown prince is going to be should he take over the, 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 the realm of power in Saudi Arabia. Well, one of the things I think that I'm wondering about is at the time that he was elevated to crown prince, which put him in line to move directly to the throne, there was another prince, I believe his name was ended in Ben Nayef or something like that, who was actually through the normal lines of succession, I may have the name wrong, was set to become the next king should the king pass away and that they changed the, 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 the king changed the, the, the line of succession to go around um, to go around the person who was scheduled to move up. And what are your thoughts on that possibility, the possibility of that causing some level of instability? Yeah. Well, you are absolutely correct as far as the name of the who was supposed to be the next king, which is Mohammed bin Naif, known as MBN. So, but here is the thing, just for your listeners to know, the succession in Saudi Arabia has been set up as a horizontal pattern. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that, Garland, is that the succession goes from one brother to the next. So this process that is controlled through allegiance, and this formula itself, which was first introduced by the founder of, of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, King Abdul Aziz, is what previous Saudi kings have done all throughout except the current king, King Salman, who decided to end this protocol. And that's why he, King Salman, elevated his son to crown prince next in line to the throne, which is really problematic. And this is why, remember, uh, the royal family, it is estimated that about 15,000 members, you know, uh, small of those numbers, about 2,000 of them possess the majority of power and wealth. And it is, uh, uh, if, if, if we can learn anything from history, and I am a student of history, using history as my guide, there are two incidents in which succession to kinship occurred through assassination. The first one was the passage of authority from Faisal ibn Turkey to his son Abdullah ibn Faisal ibn Turkey between the years of 1785 and 1865. The second assassination was committed by Prince Faisal bin Mus'ad bin Abdul Aziz, who was at that time 27 years of age, uh, who shot his uncle, King Faisal, in 1975. So why am I sharing this? I am sharing this to let you know that it will be sooner or later. Somebody among the royal princes right now is going to right the wrongs that MBS did by stepping in front of the line. So in the event, you know, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia is kind of a scary place in that always lurking in the background uh, there are some people who finance worldwide terrorism. There, in Lurking in the background, there are some very dark forces in Saudi Arabia. And in the event that that country became unstable, 
that could rock the world's oil market. Even even if they kept pumping oil, just the fact that it fell into some level of political instability could rock the world's oil markets and other markets. What are your thoughts on how Saudi Arabia fits in and how that could affect you know oil markets, et cetera, worldwide? Well, that's very, very an interesting question, uh, Garland. For the fact that we cannot ignore uh, the fact that Saudi Arabia is a top oil producer. You know, if you happen to live in Saudi Arabia, and I've had conversations with locals there, they'll dig for water and find oil. So they become millionaires overnight because that's how much oil they have. Of course, if that country gets destabilized, you're looking at a disruption of the global oil supply, which is something we cannot afford to begin with. The second thing, what concerns me the most is how that, how that destabilization is going to impact the geopolitical landscape, the global one, that is. Because remember, only about three weeks ago, Saudis mentioned that, hey, to China, we will be willing to sell you oil using the Chinese currency you want. We all remember also how Saudi Arabia snubbed the United States president when he called asking for the increase in oil. So Saudis the, needs to be a stabilized entity. Because the other concern beside oil is, can you just imagine you got a religious establishment that takes over the helm in Saudi Arabia, which will be very, very problematic. And this is why, if you are to, and I'll share this with your listeners because it's not classified, this is why the United States, especially the intelligence community, had a good relation or still have a good relationship with Mohammed bin Naif, the one who was supposed to be an excellent line, they don't have a good relationship with the current Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, especially after the latter ordered the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist in the Saudi consulate in Turkey. Which would lead one to, which again could be destabilizing in, in, in this manner. If for some reason there was some kind of a battle for power and Mohammed bin Naif um, became the, 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 you know, was, was able to win that battle. I'm not even saying it's going to happen, but let's just say that it happened. There would be a distrust, a concern that the U.S. had intervened a, on his behalf because of his history, and that could continue the destabilization or could cause, again, very radical elements to say, well, we're going to try to overthrow that or whatever. Now, I'm just, all of this is speculation, but it certainly seems to make sense. Well, you're, you're absolutely correct, John, and because there will be that question of, you know, because here's the thing. For us in the United States, which, by the way, we depend on the Saudi oil, despite what you hear. We depend on their oil greatly, you know, because we have our own and we can't even get to it. So, Because here's the concern. If Mohammed bin Salman takes over, you're looking at the next five to six decades. The guy is only 33 years of age. If you notice throughout history, most of the kings in Saudi Arabia, they are above 78 years of age, almost early 80s. That's why they don't live long, because they had to wait for their turn over four, five, or even six decades before they become king. With this guy, with the prince uh, in BS, if he steps in line and takes over and there will be no disruption, We'll be dealing with him for the next five decades. The intelligence community here in the U.S. does not want that. And this is why, as an analyst myself, I ask the question is, will Saudi Arabia pivot 
towards the east regardless of who is in power. And that remains to be seen because, mark my word on this, the U.S. intelligence is not going to let that go because the stability of Saudi Arabia is equal to the stability of the Middle East. Right. And the economic stability because of the issue of the petro- petrodollar, correct? It's a big deal because we are now very concerned about what lies ahead with the petrodollar. We all know that the crash is going to happen sooner or later. Our government, of course, is not coming forward and disclosing the information to the American people, letting them know about the high inflation, the high energy prices, the high commodities, uh, prices in commodities and so forth. Because it's just a matter of time before the dollar collapse. What is going to add more problem to that is if the Saudis and their MBS decided to accept other currencies besides the dollar. We've been talking with Dr. David Wallalu. He's an author and international security analyst. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Congressional Democrats have increased President Biden's $33 billion request for Ukraine war materials to $40 billion. And in a possibly related story, the midterms are looking horrific for the Democratic Party. Joining us now to discuss this story, we have Steve Poikin, and he's the national organizer for Action for Assange. Steve, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you, Garland. And as we were saying, Steve, both you and I reside on the one and only Rockfin. You're on Rockfin. Um, what's the name of your show? How can people find out about it and watch it? Uh, so I, I have two shows on Rockfin now. Ooh, I ooh. have Slow News Day that I've been doing for about four years, and then uh, AM Wake Up, which is a Monday through Friday morning show that I'm doing with Pasta Jardula from the Convo Couch. Oh, that's awesome, Rockfin. And, of course, I'm on there. Just look up Garland Nixon on Rockfin, and uh, you can check out all my stuff. I have a lot of good stuff. I got another great show coming on up Saturday morning with uh, Ray McGovern and Scott Ritter, so that ought to be fun. All right, so... Oh, my gosh. Let's start with the Democratic Party. $33 billion request for Ukraine at a time where we've got homelessness. We've got, need I go on? I don't have to go on with the list. Everything is shot the bloody hell uh, economically for the average schmutz in the street. And the Biden says, give me $33 billion. And if you remember, it started here. Zelensky said, I need seven billion a month for like the next four months. Biden said that ain't enough. Well, let's make it a, a little over eight, thirty-three billion a month. The Democrats are then like, ha ha ha, ten billion a month. So leading up to September, remember thirteen point six billion last month, and now for May through September, forty billion, and. It should be no surprise that this uh, party is going straight in the toilet. I don't. They're totally lost touch with America. But your thoughts on all of that, uh, Steve? Well, I mean, you're you're right. We could run through all of the the problems of the crumbling empire, but I I don't even know if that's the point in this one. This is this is a forty billion dollar aid package, <clears throat> and six point eight additional billion suggested by the Democrats. The Republicans said, are you kidding me? 6.8 billion? That's all you got? We want 8 billion more. 
in this bill. And this is going to be one of those things where if it comes down to an election issue, they're going to be like, well, look, everyone wanted to give Ukraine money. It wasn't it wasn't just us. They know they probably will never be able to win justifying this war. So they're going to drag everyone else they can down with them. And then if they have to have a wedge issue over the midterms, they've got it right here with Roe versus Wade. Don't you think the Republicans will leave them out on the limb, though? Because, you know, the, the Republicans, they'll say, yeah, make it 50, make it 60, make it 70 billion. And then when the when the um, when it comes time to run in November, the Republicans will be like, see, they're overspending. We're trying to be reasonable with money. They, the, they're like, think they're taking the Republicans out on that limb with them. And the Republicans are out there with a saw and standing on the other side of the branch holding on to the tree. No, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. And the Democrats who put themselves in a position where unless they've got hired goons standing outside of polling places in red districts and red neighborhoods turning people away, they're going to be annihilated. They're they're going to have to reroute voter buses to the wrong spots. They're all going to have to pull up like a Cubs game or something uh, to prevent the Republicans from just annihilating them in midterms. They have nothing going. Every single promise that Joe Biden made on the campaign trail, not only is he broken in spectacular fashion, but he has doubled down on finding new ways to cripple the American economy. They're doomed. Oh, absolutely. And and what they're doing in Europe is even worse. But here's the thing about it, I think. And that is there's another side to this. And it's the, 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 the Democratic Party is destroying themselves and they don't seem alarmed by it. They don't. They're like, eh, we're destroying the party. Oh, well, it's not like I'm not going to get paid if I lose my seat or if I lose my job or whatever here. There's the Center for American Evil stuff. I can go to that think tank and the Center for American More War. And then there's Lockheed Martin and then there's banks. It's gotten to a point where if you are in office, Steve, it doesn't matter anymore. In fact, you're making a whole lot money if you more money if you lose. Like Jen Psaki, you just go to she can't even wait till November. She's going to MSNBC now to get paid. It's it's Mel Brooks in History of the World Part One sitting on the throne. It's good to be the king. <laughs> we just added 535 thrones, and and we created uh, we expanded the royal court and we gave all of them think jobs or lobbyist jobs. But no, you're absolutely right. It, it is the 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 lack of concern coming from the the legislative bodies. Not just at the federal level, but the state level and largely at the local level. The the overall, you know, just general air uh, of comfort and confidence that these people walk around with is absolutely amazing. I may not necessarily uh, agree with the totality of why people are in front of judges' houses right now, but I'm really glad that people are in front of judges' houses right now. The none uh, of these goons deserve a moment's peace. Well, you know, uh, the other thing is this. You know, I hearken back to the suckers, the ones who were like, yes, sir, uh, notwithstanding his history of being a corporate warmongering stooge, we're going to put Joe Biden in office and then we're going to pull him back to the left. Yes, sir, he will listen to those after he gets in office. And he doesn't need us anymore, and he owes us nothing. That's when he'll listen to us, not when he needs our votes. 
Steve. I was going to say, it's entirely debatable as to whether or not they need our votes in the first place, Garland. It's, remember, the, not, not who votes, it's who counts them. Yeah. Well, Steve, here's the thing. The, the Biden administration is currently supporting people who are goose-stepping, Azov patch, SS waffin, insignia-wearing, uh, Sieg-Heil-screaming Nazis. Do you th- really do these people really think that they're going to listen to somebody on the left, that they can be pulled to the left? You can't get any further than people who have swastikas tattooed all over their bodies. And somehow they got in their mind that they can have some kind of influence on some guy who just sent 40 billion dollars to a bunch of goose stepping Nazis. Steve, I'm losing it here. It's possible that that the left in America and the progressives just think that those aren't really Nazis, but just History Channel enthusiasts. Oh yeah, who took it a little bit too far, <laughs> got got a little bit too into one particular series and got some ink over it. No, I, Garland, it, <laughs> it's it's in America's wheelhouse. It's in our our history in the last 100 years to have the the ruling elite arm, fund, train, give aid to Nazis, while, of course, pretending to fight them, ostensibly fighting them. But, I mean, there were certainly large portions uh, of the American upper class that uh, that funded Hitler. And then after World War II, we had the Nazi draft with Operation Paperclip, where we went after all kinds of high-ranking uh, officers, scientists, people that that we could bring into the fold because, you know, waste not, want not. I mean, this is 100% within the wheelhouse of the United States government. We're just doing it more openly now and pretending like it's not happening. That That's actually not rain on your leg, son. <laughs> and it creates this kind of weird moral dilemma that we see on Twitter with like people like the squad, right? Because at a time when people are legitimately saying, hey, Why are we arming literal Nazis, white supremacists? This is a country that people, white supremacists from all over the world, have been coming to Ukraine saying, man, this is, we're in Nirvana here, dude. This is getting, and we're getting free weapons from the United States. How great is this, right? And like the squad and these people have to just like look the other way and say, like tweet like, wouldn't it be great if we had Medicare for all? Medicare for all? Really? You, th- these aren't the people you're getting Medicare for, for all from. And so it's that moral dilemma where they got to stick their head in the sand and pretend that these people aren't Nazis, that they're just, as you said, I guess, World War II reenactment specialists or something. Well, they also have to pretend like the exact same U.S. Congress that they're a part of wouldn't if faced with the decision give aid to Nazis or provide health care for your people, automatically just go ahead and give aid to the Nazis anyway. They removed something like seven or eight billion that was earmarked for COVID funding in the let's go give $40 billion to Nazi thing. If we're going to assume that these are the same people that would be in charge of a, a federally run health care program, they would also essentially be in charge of those purse strings. So what are they going to do? When they're faced with crisis A through, you know, Q or try or opportunity to create war in country X, Y, Z. Well, and here's the thing, Steve. 
This is the, these are the same people that for the past couple years have been arguing, look, if you so much as read the word COVID, you're going to drop dead. Stay in the house. Hide under your under your pillow. Don't do anything. Don't go anywhere. Don't associate with anybody. Everything should be done online. We've got to be ultra safe. We've got to, you know, have all everything has to be for COVID, 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 COVID. And now all of a sudden people are like, hey, well, any money for COVID? Can't afford it. We got Nazis right now that need weapons. Come on, we got to have priorities. And you look at it and you see this contradiction saying, you've been telling me for the last four years that your sole priority was COVID. And then all of a sudden when the Nazis run out of bullets, ah, COVID, uh, you know, I mean, it's an inconvenience, but we we got to prioritize Nazis right now. Well, and when they lose, uh, when they lose, popularity with the war when they lose interest with the war they can just ratchet the covid back up and be like okay well everybody go back on lockdown i know we gave a lot of money to ukraine but we've got six hundred dollars coming your way that we're taking out of next year's taxes uh and we're going to give that to you in the short term we're going to front you your own money and then we'll get it back from you but um, but everybody just just stay home again and we will continue to not take care of you while we continue to expand the empire. Caitlin Johnstone writes an article. Ukraine alone makes Biden the worst U.S. president in a long time. And the, well, here's the only thing I'll say to you is this. This ain't Biden. Biden is shaking hands with the invisible man. He's startled by the Easter bunny. This guy ain't in charge of nothing. This is what happens when nobody is in charge and a bunch of warring factions of war mongers are in the background fighting to see who gets to, to make the next cataclysmic decision. Your thoughts? Yes. I mean, the, Joe Biden is a man. We've talked about this. He's the, the instant grits where his head used to or his brains used to be. He's got uh, a, a vice president that by all, you know, by I mean, by every public appearance that I, I've ever seen, not not the the, the sharpest knife in the drawer. Um, and, and probably not involved in making a lot of the decisions. When, when you have an unelected, entrenched, centralized power structure that remains in, in their positions of influence, leverage, and power, regardless of the party that, that occupies the White House or the Congress, you're going to have a lot of people making decisions with no accountability. And when there's no accountability, there's no such thing as a reckless choice. We're seeing this come to fruition in the words of Victoria Newland, in the words of Jake Sullivan, in the words of Ned Price as the little spokes weasel. And then they've got, uh, uh, what's his name, Scott Moulton running around admitting that we're in a proxy war. <laughs> We've got Adam Kinzinger and Lindsey Graham begging for a hot war and nuclear war. Go ahead. Let me add this. These contradictory statements. Statement one, Ukraine is an independent sovereign nation and they're making decisions on their in, on their own and they have a right to their choices. Statement number two, we're in a proxy war with Russia and we're using Ukraine as the well, wait, there's a contradiction there, isn't it? How can they be an independent sovereign country making their own decisions at the same time we are using them as a tool in a proxy war? My BS uh, meter has just gone off. Off. The alarm has just gone off. So, but unfortunately, we got to go off because we're just about out of time. Thanks a lot, Steve. <laughs> Thank you, Garland. All right, talk to you soon. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The upsurge of political revolution in Latin America represents a recycling of the moral, political, and philosophical ideas of Hugo Chavez. Also, Caribbean states are boycotting the U.S.-led summit of the Americas over the exclusion of Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Joining us to discuss these matters, we have Dan Kavalik. Dan's a writer, author, lawyer, professor, and all kinds of good stuff. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much, Carl. Mission Verdad writes, a specter is haunting Latin America. The ideas of Hugo Chavez, a new progressivism, is adopting them as their banner and claiming them as their own, thus invisibilizing Venezuela's role in attempts at promoting regional integration and sovereignty over the last two decades. Very interesting article. A lot of lot to take in there, but your thoughts on the article, um, Dan? Yeah, well, I think that's true. Uh, I think I would also give credit, by the way, to Fidel Castro as well is one of the intellectual authors of this. Um, but yes, what we see is a reemergence of what they called uh, the pink tide, uh, which began with the elections, certainly of Hugo Chavez in 1998. And uh, yes, in which a number of countries joined together uh, in the Latin America and Caribbean to form a block really to uh, protect itself uh, against the United States. And so now we see, first of all, Venezuela getting back on its feet. It's expected to have a 20 percent economic growth this year. Uh, Nicaragua continues to prosper under the Sandinistas. Cuba is hanging on. Now, of course, you have AMLO in Mexico, who's trying to take an independent path, a little more cautious one, but still. Uh, Argentina is now being invited to meet with the BRICS. They may even become one of the BRICS countries. You have Lula da Silva in Brazil, who's knocking on the door possibly to become the next president. Uh, Chile has gone a very, uh, for the most part, a very progressive path, rejecting the constitution last year of Augusto Pinochet. Bolivia's uh, party, MAS party of uh, Evo Morales, has returned to power. Um, in Peru, you have a progressive government. So, you know, down the line, you're seeing, uh, you know, left of center governments reemerge in Latin America after a, a, uh, a certain ebb of the pink tide a bit ago. Let me ask you this. I think person who I see as a modern day iteration incarnation of those kind of uh, revolutionary actors is Evo Morales. And I tell you why. When I see Bolivia, Bolivia was down. The U.S. overthrew their government. They came back up. And I think of the the, the Shanghai fighters, you know, uh, quote that says fall down seven times, get up eight. And it was Bolivia got knocked down, they got overthrown, and they pushed back and they were able to get independence again. With this pink tide, to me, it's the same thing, only just, okay, it may take you six months or it may take you 15 years, but it's the same concept. When the empire knocks you down, you don't give up on your social movements that translate into political movements. And at any rate, your thought, Evo Morales and then the whole philosophical argument about falling down and getting back up. No, I think that that is a very good uh, analysis. Evo Morales was overthrown in an unconstitutional coup in 2019, which, of course, the United States government, media and human rights groups backed, especially Human Rights Watch. He had to go in exile into Argentina 
And frankly, it looked grim. The new government uh, began uh, killing uh, particularly indigenous leaders but other social leaders. And it looked pretty bad. But elections were held uh, a year later after the coup and uh, Morales' party uh, returned to power and Morales himself returned to Bolivia. Uh, and he never stopped being an international figure. Even during his time in exile, he continued to be a leader of the progressive movement in, in Latin America. So, yeah, he showed that it's possible to, you know, be out of power and come back. But, you know, again, another great example of this, Garland, is Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas. They were voted out of office in 1990 because of the pressure of the Contra War in which 30,000 Nicaraguans were killed, a brutal terrorist war. Uh, the voters really were coerced by that war in, into voting the Sandinistas out of power. And they were out of power for 17 years and went through some very difficult times. And they reemerged uh, with Danielle being reelected in 2006 and retaking power in 2007. And he continues to be the president by election in Nicaragua. So I think the Sandinistas also have shown a certain stick to which again is a great model for all of us, right? Because frankly, in the US, we see the retreat of the left, a huge retreat, and, and particularly of the anti-imperialist left. And so we need to look to those models and those examples of people who have been in the wilderness and have returned. I mean, that is part of a revolution. You know, Mao's Long March, for example, I think about. Um, every revolutionary has moments where they're in the wilderness, in the darkness. You know, when Fidel and his 82, I think, comrades took La Grama, the boat uh, from Mexico to Cuba to begin the revolution, uh, the, the boat sank and uh, only 12 of them survived. And again, it looked pretty bleak, and yet they won. And so, yeah, we need to take heart in those types of examples. You know, another important thing that's going on now is the trial of Janine Añez, because traditionally the U.S. empire would effect these coups, um, and as usual, hundreds, more likely thousands and tens of thousands of um, indigenous and people of color were slaughtered, and no one was held accountable, and the U.S. would just sneak them out of the, you know, sneak them out of the country or just overthrow the country through violence. Janine Añez, in this instance, she was involved in a U.S. coup. She's been jailed. She's been charged with all kinds of things, including genocide. And it appears that there may actually be some level of justice, which I think is a um, a message to the Juan Guaido type people of the world who feel that they can just be traitors um, on behalf of the U.S. empire and never face accountability. How important do you think this trial is? Yeah, I agree with you. It is important. And again, Juan Guaido is a good counterexample where here's a guy who goes around calling himself the president of Venezuela when he hasn't even been elected dog catcher, um, who has taken billions of dollars of uh, Venezuelan revenue that could have gone to the poor, for example, uh, that the U.S. stole and gave him. And yet he's still walking around the streets of Caracas, a free man, you know, and in part that's because – Venezuela fears if they moved against him, which any country would have the right to, right? He is he is a traitor if the, if that word has any meaning. 
Um, you know, but they're afraid of reprisals. And you're right. And that happens so often. And yet in the case of Bolivia, they are holding this individual to account who declared herself president of Bolivia and oversaw, you know, yes, the killing of, of many um, uh, social leaders in that country. And they are, have her in jail and they are going to try her. And that is a good uh, model for other countries in such situations. I think another thing that is important is what's going on in Venezuela economically, in spite of the economic uh, disaster that, you know, the, the storm clouds over the entire world, we can say that the U.S. empire attacked economically attacked Venezuela. They lost literally 99% of their GDP. And then the empire said, Maduro is very, he's terrible. Look at this guy. He's destroyed his economy. Now, in spite of that, it appears that the um, Venezuelan economy is growing with the help of countries like Russia, China, and uh, certainly Iran, and that it's to be a steward over that economy, not, I mean, I'm not bragging or saying he's great or terrible, but to to hold on through that, to maintain the support of your people, to continue to build literally hundreds of thousands of free homes, and now to start coming back, I think is quite a feat. I agree. I think Maduro has been greatly underestimated by people, including the left in the United States, um, he doesn't have quite the charisma as, as Hugo Chavez, but what he has done is nothing short of miraculous. Yes, he brought the country back from a situation in which, yes, they had almost zero revenue because, again, the U.S. stole its U.S. oil company from it. Uh, the Bank of England stole a billion dollars of their gold. I mean, they were put on the skids, you know. And as you say, they've come back. Their economy is in much better shape. Their oil industry is back online. Um, I think they're now producing like two million barrels a month. Um, and they look to have, uh, again, prosperity returning there. I think Maduro has done an amazing job in that, but he also got help from China, Iran, Russia. And it shows why we need a multipolar world, right? Because countries like Venezuela, like Nicaragua, like Cuba, who are being sanctioned by the United States need to have friends elsewhere who can help them. And this is an example of where that really worked for them. And speaking about friends, the upcoming summit of the Americans in Los Angeles, of the Americas in Los Angeles is poised to become a diplomatic liability for U.S. President Joe Biden as a Caribbean community, CARICOM Alliance, threatens to boycott the events over e efforts by the host nation to exclude, they have here in this article, Cuba and Venezuela from participating, but they're also excluding Nicaragua. Your thoughts on that? I think that personally, that's a good thing to me. Yeah, I don't think other countries should go if uh, those other three countries are excluded. It shouldn't be up to the U.S. to decide uh, who comes to the summit of the, of the Americas. Uh, by the way, there's a, a kind of a, a counter summit of the Americas happening in Tijuana, Mexico um, at that time, which is going to invite Venezuelans, Cubans, and Nicaraguans um, to protest uh, their exclusion um, in Los Angeles. So we'll see what happens. But I, I would like to see this 
protest work in, 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 in those three countries be, be invited? Well, here's the reality. If the U.S. says there's going to be a summit of the Americas and we can arbitrarily and capriciously decide who's going to be there and who's not, then it ain't a summit of the Americas. It is a summit of the obedient fashion. I mean, excuse me, the, the, the obedient vassals. Um, the, the summit of the Americas implies that whoever wants to come or whoever's part of the Americas can come. But the U.S. is basically saying a summit of the Americas, eh, if you're a little too far to the left, we don't count you in and we consider you an adversary. I mean, it is blatant and absurd at the same time. No, of course it is. And uh, of course, it has nothing to do with democracy or freedom, as the U.S. claims or human rights. You look at Colombia, who's invited. They have the worst human rights record in the hemisphere, right, where social leaders are being killed almost daily there, where the, pre- the presidential candidate Gustavo Petro and his vice president, Francia Marquez, uh, a lot of people fear could be killed uh, in advance of the elections or shortly after. Um, and yet they're invited. Yeah, the U.S. is not the arbiter of who has standing in the Americas, and that needs to be resisted. You know, the article also says right-wing organizations in the South American countries have similar called on the U.S. to exclude Bolivia from this upcoming summit. The real problem I have with that is that's like my hand telling my nose not to do something. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, why should they have any say in what's happening? The duly elected governments of these countries should be able to send whoever they want uh, to to the summit. This is nothing but old time imperialist hubris that the U.S. Uh, is showing. And again, I think it'd be better not to have a summit than to have one where these countries are excluded. Agreed, because it's not a summit if those countries are excluded. Thanks a lot, Dan Dan Kovalik. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you are informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe, peace, and blessings. We are out. 